Ronaldo is ready. Strikes. It's Thanksgiving week. Crossing Broad FC is back to bring you the finest in international football, including club storylines, a little bit of stuff from the international break, and of course, a former Real Madrid manager approaching U.S. soccer saying, please hire me, and them allegedly saying, go away. We'll get to that a little bit later, but I am joined as always by Phil Kaidel, who you can find on Twitter at Phil Kaidel. That's K-E-I-D-E-L. It's not hard to spell. It's Phil Kaidel. And of course, I'm Russ Joy, who you can find on Twitter at Joy Broad. Fighting back coughs. Uh, this one is going to probably be a, a high fill uh, percentage. And uh, it's going to be, I think, an interesting show, Phil. We're probably going to keep this kind of tight because, uh, you know, people are either going to listen to this, I'm guessing, Thanksgiving morning, if they're not interested in watching the NFL or if they just are looking for a respite to get away from their screaming children or screaming families or, I don't know, Both. keep keep them company in between games. I'm not sure. But anyway, it's either going to be a Thanksgiving Day uh, listen or maybe a little bit later. So if, if you're listening to it on Thanksgiving, happy Thanksgiving. If not, uh, if it's after, hope you had a good holiday. I don't know. So, Phil, uh, let's get into some stuff uh, right off the top. Uh, do you want to start with the, the EPL? We've got EPL, La Liga, Bundesliga, Serie A all coming down and including some stuff from the international break. What would you like to hit first? Well, it's about time you upped my usage rate, Russell. We've been doing this long enough, and it's about time you tapped me and gave me the spotlight that I've so richly deserved all this time. Uh, I it's a, uh, it's a fair point. Do you want to, do you want to come out of retirement and, uh, and play one more match like Wayne Rooney did? Or? Yeah, we're going to get to that too, which I find hilarious. I echo your sentiments, by the way. Uh, I am thankful for our audience and I'm thankful for the opportunity to do this podcast with you. I trust that all of our listeners have reached their destinations, wherever they're headed for the holiday safely and that they're with people they care about and, uh, are reflecting on the things that their lives in their lives that are important to them and that they should be thankful for, because that's what this particular stretch of the calendar is about not so much the four-day weekend although let's be honest we like that too and what is there to be more thankful for in this world than the beautiful game of football yes indeed and and frankly when we're talking about beauty we're talking about the premier league and we're talking about wait for it manchester city in the derby <laughs> putting a clinical abusive beating a on their crosstown rivals uh, winning the Derby 3-1 in a match that City were never seriously threatened in. Um, United, frankly, didn't much look like scoring at all until they were down 2-0 already. And City's keeper, Ederson, for whatever reason, left his line, came out, challenged Romelu Lukaku, who had recently been introduced to the match, tripped Lukaku when he was, I don't know, 40 feet from goal, and concedes a penalty. Penalty's converted, now it's 2-1. And as a City supporter, as I am, uh, you're watching this match at this point thinking, they couldn't really screw this up, could they? Like, they were pushing United all over the place and doing whatever they wanted and, you know, not scoring at will so much because typical Mourinho, he's going to try to take the air out of the ball. But they had been so comfortable up 2-0 for a good 15 or 10 minutes or so before Lukaku scored, and they had led at the half, and they were just going to stroll to a win. And then... The penalty makes it 2-1, and, and as a City supporter, you're thinking, could they really botch this? Because, again, they had lost a lead late last year at the Etihad in a match where they could have clinched the Premier League title at United's expense last spring. So you have all that kind of rolling around in the back of your head, and then something that 
you won't see again this season and may not see again for five or ten seasons in the Premier League happened, and this was it. Manchester City, late in the match, 84th, 85th, 86th minute, nursing a 2-1 lead, start batting the ball around, backfield, midfield, up front, back to midfield, back to a defender, and the passes just keep accruing, and Arlo White and Graham Lasseau and Lee Dixon are trying to make conversation because there's nothing to talk about because City are just holding the ball, and there's nothing United can do. And about a minute into this passage, they start to talk amongst themselves and say, well, this is just defensive possession by City, I guess. They're, they're just trying to keep United from getting the ball back, and this is the easiest way to defend is if you have the ball. And they're killing time the way City are killing time, except it wasn't that at all. City were working toward something that was a stroke of brilliance and genius and beauty that, again, rarely seen in this league. As I've said last time we were together, you wanted Barcelona in the Premier League, you got Barcelona in the Premier League. 44 straight passes they put together until Bernardo Silva hit Ilka Gundogan in the box, six yards from goal. Nemanja Matic watches the ball go by, does nothing. Gundogan slaps it in. De Gea slaps the ground, and it's 3-1. And at that point, you know that City have once again dispatched United, put more of a gulf between what City are and what United are at this point in time. And as a sideline, I'll note, uh, this was a gambling miracle. If you had City minus a goal and a half or over three and a half goals total in the match, because really when it's 2-1 in the 85th minute, 86th minute, you have no reason to believe that anything's going to happen other than it's going to finish 2-1. And then Gundogan scores, and he scores because this is what Guardiola has wrought. He has prepared and presented a club and a project and a side and a mentality that they don't stop playing. They keep coming at you. They don't lock things down. Now, they were a little tepid at Anfield earlier this season. I'll grant that, although they probably should have won anyway. But man, when they have the ball, they are still trying to score. They are not going to sit on a 2-1 lead and just hope for the best. And they put United to the sword in that match. And now the, the, the stat I saw on Twitter or the thing I heard uh, on one of the broadcasts is United is as close to relegation now as they are to the top of the table. And it is crazy now to suggest that Manchester United, mighty Manchester United, have any chance of catching City. United have 20 points. City have 32. So a 12-point lead with 12 matches played. At this rate, God only knows how many points City will beat United by. Um, very quickly, before I let you jump in and stop this train that I'm on, because Frankly, I'm enjoying myself, as you can tell. Hey, go off off the uh, rails on that crazy train, Phil. Well, and here's the other thing, too. I mean, Jose Mourinho comes out after Wait, the match. Let me jump in go really ahead. quick before we get to Mourinho, sure. who, of course, is the most quotable manager in the entire league, if not all of international football. And I, I there was a thing that literally just broke as we began recording, so I, I'll make sure that we get go that for it. as well. Uh, the 44 pass lead up to the goal took two minutes off the clock and even if you go back and, and I was just pulling it back up on YouTube for those who haven't seen it if you've ever coached before um, often in a in a game where you clearly are are outclassing the opposition and especially this should happen at, at pretty much any level but especially youth sports when you realize that you are that much better than the other team you 
put in silent conditions. You know, at halftime, you might have that conversation. If you know going into the game that you're going to totally outclass the opposition, you, you set some. That can be simple. That could be, you know, 10, 10 clean passes before you're allowed to shoot. That could be needing to switch fields three times. That could be uh, once we regain possession, it's got to go all the way back through all levels, back to the keeper, and then build out of the back. And then there, there are somewhere, you know, eventually you say you can only score on a header, you're only allowed to score on a set piece, whatever. Weak foot, right. Yep, yep. And so watching this 44-pass thing, I mean, it legitimately looked like, um, I, I was trying to think of, of a, a nicer, uh, I don't want to go with something that's too local, but like... Uh, Owen J. Roberts, I think, was an undefeated. The girls' high school team was undefeated, I believe, this season, at, at least through regular season play. This would be like them going up against like a like a Norris town. So Go if on. anybody if anybody's from that area, um, you know, they they are certain Norris town certainly not a a powerhouse in girls soccer. But if you were going to compare the two, it's it's similar. I have two and, relevant observations here. I think, okay. if you'll allow me to jump Go in. Ahead. The analogy that I have reached for, which may or may not be apposite, is watching City possess the ball and keep it away from United was like watching Ken Jennings play Jeopardy when he was winning 60-odd matches in a row on Jeopardy. And all these brilliant people were being brought onto the show who had passed the test and passed the camera test and got their shot to win a Jeopardy match. And then they saw that they were playing against Jennings, who had been there for a month, and they just collapsed they fell apart they knew they had no chance and jennings would do things like he'd have a twenty thousand dollar lead after uh jeopardy round and then in the double jeopardy round he would get a daily double and up thirty thousand dollars he'd bet twenty eight thousand dollars for no reason just because he could and you would see the faces of these contestants jennings was against and they were completely demoralized and if you watch the playback of the 44 pass goal that gundawan scored it wasn't just De Gea flopping around on the ground, frustrated because they had let that happen in front of him. And it wasn't just Matic's shoulders uh, sagging and uh, the, the United midfielders and defenders kind of throwing their hands in the air. There is this unbelievable shot of Mourinho standing at midfield near the touchline, watching what had happened to his quote-unquote defensive side and just having no answer and no expression. He was dumbstruck. It was beautiful. I like that analogy. The only thing that I would say is I I think that there are enough city or enough United players that feel like they are of such a high quality that the only thing I can compare it to, if we're going to keep the Jeopardy analogy is Brad Rutter and Ken Jennings, because, you know, Brad Rutter, before you were allowed to go on for that ridiculous kind of streak that Ken Jennings could go for just absolutely eviscerated people. And I think he his lifetime earnings, I think, in his limited run were even higher than that of Jennings. And if he beat not, Jennings if, when they did well, a no, 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 of no, I know. I'm saying, like, in their respective runs, and it was in right. a lot less games. Um, certainly since, like, Battle of the Decades and the, the Million Dollar Challenge and all that, he has easily out-earned out Jennings at this point. Um, but what I'm saying is, you know, Jennings went in being told, you know, you've got a lot of class, you've got a lot of talent, you're clearly good at this and that's what a lot of these guys who play for united have been, have been and done and same thing with Mourinho. and then you just kind of watch as you know brad rudder continues time after time to just outclass you quite frankly and and you know you watch somebody who was so prideful as jennings was and as united were 
and just watch the whole thing crumble. And well, so it's a large, strong predator being disemboweled by a larger, stronger, younger, hungrier predator. Yep. And it's strange to watch. Very quickly, I've never told this story on the pod, although I believe I've told you this story offline. You made mention of the fact that when teams are not e- equally matched, you have these rules you put in and, and you decide not to make it such a blowout. The last youth soccer match I coached was my son's U8 match uh, five years ago now. We were up 4 nothing in the first round of the playoffs, and I instructed my team not to score. One child, who shall remain nameless, disregarded my instructions, intentionally scored twice, made a big show of doing so, and after the match, I got assaulted <laughs> on the pitch by one of the parents of the other team because we won 6 nothing instead of 4 nothing. and I told the guy, I'm like, I don't know why you're sticking your finger in my chest and cursing at me. I told that kid not to score. Well, you should have taken him out of the game. You can't really talk reason to youth sports parents. But you but certainly can't. here's the thing. Obviously, in a youth sports context, in a high school sports context, these players aren't being paid. This is not what, what they're going to spend their lives doing. There is no reason to take any pity on any Man United player, any Bournemouth player, any Cardiff City player. If they get a number hung, hung on them, just the way the Eagles got a number hung on them in New Orleans last weekend, if you had a problem with it, play better. Do something about it. Uh, and in that circumstance that we've described now for some length of time, Manchester United had no answer. They couldn't even dispossess City of the ball for two solid minutes. And not only did they let them have the ball for two minutes, they then let them score at the end of it. Yep. Unreal. You got to remember, uh, the the Mourinho thing is even funnier because he's he's mentioned multiple times now that teams like Liverpool and City have outspent United, and, and that's part of the reason why his team hasn't found the amount of success that, that would have been expected of them. Um, interestingly enough, uh, the thing that I was talking about having happened while we started recording, Didier Drogba came out and said that um, he believes that Mourinho's not to blame for the recent struggles and said that um, Mourinho would have won the Premier League two or three times if he was the boss of City. So that's a thing. Apparently. <laughs> I you know I like Drogba. I think Drogba was a great player, but he said uh, if, if you put Mourinho at City, he would have won the league two, maybe th- two or three times. You get criticism because you set a standard of winning, uh, and now you're not winning or having the same results. He's still at United. You have to look at the managers who were at United the last few years. Being manager after Sir Alex Ferguson is not easy, and the finances they had then are not the same as what they have now. Uh, people only pay attention to the best, and he's one of the best, and that's why he gets all of this. The, the whole problem, and, and this is the thing that I struggle with, is United is not a poor team. The acquisition of Paul Pogba was not, was not for peanuts, right? It wasn't for pennies they signed on the dollar. Fred for a huge transfer fee over the summer, and he didn't even play in the derby recently. So, you know, again, is it a failure to acquire the appropriate talent? Is it a failure to identify the perfect talent for your system? Or is it, in some way, on the manager for not being able to utilize those players effectively? Mourinho I mean, has been there they, for multiple transfer windows now, and most of the players that played in the most recent derby a couple weeks ago were holdovers from the Moyes era and or the Ferguson era. Yeah, I mean, so, look, look at look it. at Mata, right? Like, when, when he was at Chelsea, he scared off Juan Mata, right? And now, Mata, you know, he, he came into this job, and Mata's there. And Mata's been one of their better midfielders over the last two years. 
And then you look at a guy like, you know, Pogba. We said all during the World Cup, where's this Paul Pogba been? This is the Paul Pogba we got used to seeing playing for Juventus. And we're like, wow, you know, if anybody should be able to to make the most of his skill set and, and take that French national team Paul Pogba, who was a stalwart in the in the World Cup, and utilize his talents and, and ride that momentum, it should be Mourinho. It should be United. They should be able to make more of what Pogba is. And instead, you know, we go back to the same kind of storylines as last season. You know, not starting him in big games. Not playing him the amount of time that you would expect. Well, he was hurt this time, if we're going to be fair. The only yeah, fair. break I'll give Mourinho on this one is that Pogba was not fit for this derby. And so uh, I'm sure that that changed what Mourinho's game plan is. But that shouldn't lead to them being down 2-0 after 49 minutes. And it definitely should not lead to them giving up this wonder goal at the end of the match. Mourinho came in after the match and said, if Pogba had been fit, I could have saved Fellaini for the 60th minute, and then City would have been in, quote, big trouble, unquote. Now that is rich. Because, first of all, if Fellaini isn't fit to play 90 minutes at this point, he probably shouldn't even be on the team. Isn't it saying something that you have to rely that much on Fellaini? Like, if if your game plan is focused around needing to play Fellaini for, like, 75, 75 plus minutes, like, doesn't that say that not only have you failed... In acquiring talent and and developing talent, and and molding this team's identity to the talent that you do have, but like Fellaini, really? Like I, I know plenty of United fans who were hoping that they would just kind of let his contract run, out or or over the last transfer window they would have seen him go. This he was a Moyes silly. guy. That yeah. that was Fellaini's whole thing. I mean, Fellaini came to United because Moyes became the manager. That's what I'm saying. That you know that is to your point. Like the the guys that he's leaned on the most. Are moist holdovers, and they're, well, he they're not like the guys that he's players. acquired. I mean, he, he, that's what he doesn't like to play young players, and these are the old players he still has, and so that's who he runs out. I think I've probably taken the city thing as far as it'll go. Although I will transition into saying that as City were putting uh, this nice compact beating on United, reports were surfacing that uh, City may possibly have intentionally circumvented financial fair play. Surprise. In the last year or so. And uh, you can read up on it. Gab Marcotti did a great piece on ESPN.com if you want to read the particulars and the ways that City may have circumvented the rules and the decisions City may have made in terms of uh, challenging UEFA and you know putting everybody to a dare of, like, if you want to try to penalize us, we'll sue you, et cetera, and so forth. Those are all details that I don't really need to suss out because I think they're very dry and very dull. The question I have for you, Russ, is do you care? Do you care that if City create what looks to be uh, a side that could in the next, shall we say, 18 to 24 months um, run a Premier League and go deep in a Champions League and reload again next summer and do it again next year and so on and so forth as long as Guardiola is there and as long as the money keeps flowing – does it bother you? Do you care? That's what I want to know. I don't know, man, because like if, if you think about it, like what's different about this versus what happened with <clears throat> with uh, PSG? Yeah, that's exactly right. Not like, only is it PSG not any different from PSG, keep going. Yeah, I mean, PSG has, has appealed uh, earlier this month. They appealed UEFA's decision to reopen the financial fair play investigation. And like there, there was, you know, remember, there were all the rumors that when Neymar was transferred – that there was going to be some kind of a payment made to his father off books and that there, there could there could potentially be 
some kind of payment made to Neymar that also wasn't going to be reported. You know, you knew that he was going to break the world record for transfer fee. I mean, what do we expect at this point? Well, So it's like, do I care? Yeah, for the integrity of the game, I do. For any kind of fairness. You know, this is why when we ended the last episode, you know, we talked about the European Super League. And, you know, I understood your point where you said that conceptually you don't like it because it doesn't make things special anymore. I look at teams like PSG and, and City who, I mean, let's be honest, you know, they can they can afford great lawyers. They can probably work their way out of this, but they weren't playing within the rules. And, and they very likely were doing the best they could to manipulate any rules that were in existence to try to justify what they did. There, there are teams in their league that can't do it. The bottom halves of, of pretty much every international uh, club table can't afford to do this. And so the, the idea to me that they would get indignant when they've been called onto the carpet for it is silly. And so, like, do I care? Yeah, but, like, this is the rich get richer. And they're going to win. Just like PSG, you know, up until a couple weeks ago when, when they, um, they appealed UEFA opening this up again, like, they effectively... <coughs> well, excuse me. They effectively had won. So, like, I, I just don't see this ever working out. I mean, th- this also happens, like, let's not kid ourselves, this happens with players as well, you know, like, the thought of why Cristiano Ronaldo was so quick to get out of Real Madrid, you know, some thought had to do with a, a potential tax evasion, and, you know, the first time you get, you get charged in Spain, you don't go to prison, but the second time, you know, you have a much higher chance of, of going to prison. These players, they, they, they're, they're... I don't want to throw out any kind of you know claim here and, and act like it's 100% fact, but there is an idea out there that, that players try to evade taxes and that clubs try to avoid financial fair play. And, you know, you, you could do it. You can get away with it. If, if you have a good enough attorney, I guess you can get away with just about anything. But do I care? Yeah. Do I expect anything to really be done about it? No. And and that is going to make that disparity, that, that gap in, in quality, between City and, and the, quite frankly, the rest of the Premier League, that much, you know, that much bigger. And, and again, like, is that something that people really want to watch? I don't know. Well, here is my quick rejoinder. And again, obviously, I'm in the bag for Manchester City, so I'm not going to pretend that I'm objective. But I will say that when I was reading up on the origins of the club, when I used to be blogging about the club for uh, another site, uh, it was important for me to know what I was talking about. So I asked some questions of some journalists who had covered Manchester City for a long time. I said, why is it that City are getting uh, pilloried for having this influx of money from the Sheikh and Abu Dhabi? Like, look, every club in the history of time has paid their players with money. They don't pay them with promises or lollipops or rainbows. It's always money. So what's the issue here? And the response I got back was, well, it's resentment, but it's mainly resentment from clubs who used to do this same thing and Billy Club City and other clubs like it with their money when they could back in the day, a la Liverpool, a la United, a la Arsenal. When the Premier League was created, those clubs used their stronger base, deeper pockets, bigger name and exposure and draw to push down clubs like Manchester City, like the Blackburns of the world. I mean, a lot of clubs, Wigan Athletic, a lot of clubs that aren't really in the discussion anymore for the reasons you've already cited to. And so at some level, I really feel like it's sour grapes from the likes of Chelsea and Arsenal and Liverpool 
that city have all this money to spend. Like, too bad. You had your day, and now it's city's day, and you can just take it. That's point one. Point two is, ultimately, aren't we all interested in seeing the very best that a club can put together? I mean, ultimately, no matter how much money you can spend and no matter what players you can attract to your club and no matter what side you can roll out there, the the sport still limits you to 11 players on the pitch at one time, you know, 16 or 18 on match day, uh, three subs. The rules are the same for everybody in that regard. Just because a city can afford 30 great players doesn't mean they can all play at the same time. What we are seeing is Guardiola maximizing the assets that he is able to afford through what is effectively a limitless budget, but creating something special within the construct of the sport itself. And for my money, you know, when Barcelona did it with Messi and with Real Madrid, when Real Madrid did it with Ronaldo, nobody blinked. Everyone was really happy to see those clubs be this perfect expression of beautiful game well why can't it be city's turn to do that and why can't we just agree to enjoy it and watch it for what it is which is when they're playing really remarkably great yes why why shouldn't we just sit back and enjoy cheating you're right phil you're right um listen if we're going to start calling people after cheating you know we're going to be vacating a lot of league titles and champions league titles and this and that like we could do that for until the end of time um me i'm about today and tomorrow let's go forward since we're uh i I think a little bit outside of the uh the realm of just going over results i I wanted to talk really quick about the the uh, richard scudamore thing that was going around with the epl um the expectation that what what was it going to be phil Two hundred fifty thousand pounds from each team yeah so so susanna dinage is being appointed or has been appointed to the role of chief executive she is going to uh, take over uh, shortly. Richard Scudamore has been in charge of the Premier League for almost 20 years. He's going to leave at the end of the year, and uh, Ms. Dinage is going to take over. By the way, it's, I think it's uh, very progressive of the Premier League, uh, of all the leagues, uh, you know, a league in Great Britain, uh, which kind of has a, a kind of a posh and uh, high tea uh, reputation and or air about it, to uh, place a younger woman uh, in this role, I think it's very progressive, and the Premier Hashtag League probably progressive. The Premier League deserves a lot of credit for doing this. So, but the, the challenge, though, the problem is, Scudamore has led the Premier League to unbelievable advancement in terms of its financial fortunes, and its television rights, and its visibility over the last, well, really twenty years. But if you want to get right down to it, the last five or seven years. For the Premier League have been boom times. I mean, their expansion into the United States via NBC and the creation of interest. Massive uh, coup. It's amazing what they've been able to do. And they have leveraged the advantage that we've talked about before in terms of the fact that, you know, the clubs all have names that you and I can pronounce. They have players we recognize. They have places we could con- conceivably visit and go and enjoy because a lot of them are in London and a lot of them are in Manchester and yep. we can go on and on. Scudamore has led that charge. And so you can, like anything else, you have a successful executive, you want to move on from him. If he has a contract that says he's entitled to X, Y, or Z, it's in your best interest to give him X, Y, or Z yep. to make the transition as smooth as possible. So the, the league has come to the clubs and said, We'd like you all to contribute 250,000 quid pounds to uh, a balloon payment to Scudamore 
to facilitate his departure from this position and allow Dinage to take over. And here's the thing, five million pounds at day's end isn't even a really good midfielder in the Premier League. So it really isn't a lot of money, and I get that. But here's the problem. The optics of it suck. City can afford it easily. Arsenal, Chelsea, Liverpool, yeah, whatever. Here's the check. Man, you go down the bottom of the, the Premier League table, and you start talking about Southampton and Cardiff City and Huddersfield Town and freaking Fulham, who have one win this year and who are, frankly, struggling for survival, possibly not going to be around in this league too much longer if relegation strikes them. That quarter million pounds of those clubs really matters. I mean, it could be something as simple as just renovating the stadium or uh, creating a more positive experience for their ticket-buying supporters. And not only that, a lot of these clubs that I've just described are not in the nicest parts of the aisles. I mean, these towns are struggling. So if the club is the centerpiece of a town that has economic problems and the club strokes a check to the already ungodly wealthy Premier League to facilitate the departure of a multi-multi-millionaire out of a very well-paid position so another person can come in and take the same position, the optics are horrible. But I think it's going to happen. I think they're going to do it this way. I think, in retrospect, they maybe should not have been so transparent. No, I mean, I, I think you're right. I'm, you know, when you talk about the optics, um, iNews out of the UK uh, wrote a whole thing about um, five million pounds could pay for 2,300 low-paid workers at Premier League clubs to have their annual wages raised to the real living wage. I mean, it sounds like Bernie Sanders kind of stuff, though, right? But um, but so what? Yeah, you have I mean, a point. <clears throat> Hold on, let me let me go full Bernie here. Five million pounds could pay the salary of two hundred and eighty-five cleaners on the real living wage for a year, or two hundred eighty-five security guards, or two hundred eighty-five magic day staff. So it says this, a lot that you've struggled with your voice in this show so far, and yet you can reach down. That was deep. easy. Yeah, that well, actually felt good. Maybe I should just the rest of the episode <laughs> as Bernie said. So let's talk about Scudamore. Okay, so Scudamore, very nice guy. Now, so the, one of the interesting things, wow, that actually did make my voice feel a lot better. Also, my wife just ran me down a hot tea. How, how English could this get? Um, one of the things that I, I, I think is interesting about this is I'm trying to imagine if, if the NBA tried to do this for David Stern um, as Adam Silver was getting ready to take over, how that would have gone over in, uh, in league circles and especially with, with their demo of, of younger people who watch the sport. Um, back to your point about Scudamore and, and what he's done for the game, especially in the U.S. You know, we've talked about TV rights and, and what those contracts are going to look like over the next few years. Of course, the Bundesliga's deal with Fox is going to be expiring, I believe, in, in uh, I think it's at the end of the 2020 season. No, it might be 2019. Um, and the La Liga rights, assuming they don't try to opt out, it's Relevant Sports, who I believe is owned by the Miami Dolphins owner. They're the ones who own the rights to um, to La Liga. They have the, the, the right. He owns the rights um, to sell those rights to U.S. Uh, networks. So we know that La Liga is going to be up in a couple of years. The fact that Scudamore was intelligent enough to forge the partnership that he did with NBC is something that just simply cannot be quantified. I mean, the coverage that NBC does is so superior uh, in terms of marketing, I mean, you'll you'll see advertisements for 
big EPL matches on Sunday Night Football. You'll see it on pretty much any program. Primetime, you'll see commercials every so often. Manchester Derby's coming up. You know about it. You know, when you look at what Fox has done with the Bundesliga, especially this season, they've done such a poor job. And, and you know, I, I think at some point we were going to get to it, but the ratings for um, Bayern Munich and, and Borussia Dortmund were god-awful. And part of that is by virtue of the fact that, you know, Der Klassiker, as it's called, was put on FS2. It wasn't even like, you know, you could tell how little Fox values that property. Yeah, I pay an they, absurd amount in cable costs and I don't get FS2. Yep. So, you know, you think about it, FS2 is not available in, in many households at all. Fox has, you know, lost the rights to the Champions League and the Europa League. Um, all they really have is the the Bundesliga and some U.S. men's national team game rights. And the fact that they value the property so little that not only did they not put it on Big Fox, which I think they did the first year, not to not they didn't put it on FS1, but they they relegated it to this channel that most people don't get. Even a lot of streaming services don't have FS2. <laughs> it says a lot. It says a lot about the way that they value that product. And so, you know, B and I think treats La Liga like a, a crown jewel as they should. I don't think they've ta- they've treated uh, Liga Un very well. I think they did malpractice with Serie A, and and Serie A has been better since ESPN has taken it over. I mean, you think about what Scudamore did. NBC was the best partner, and and they've proven that time and time again. And some people I know want to see the EPL move elsewhere, just for the sake of of mixing it up and seeing if the NBC can raise a, another league's profile the same way that they did with uh, the Premier League. But quite frankly, I don't want to see it go anywhere. I mean, I well, think not only the, that it's lightning in a bottle. And the, uh, for the reasons I mentioned earlier, uh, these English clubs have names you can pronounce. Um, they, you can imagine going to the You're telling me that uh, Cagliari, which well, that's my uh, point, the GLI, GLI in Italian, you have to yeah, man. It, it's like a E. You have to like I roll know it that while you... making an E. Uh, facial expression, yeah. I know you're an educated man. You speak many more languages than I do. I just about speak this one. Um, but I can tell you that that even to the extent that uh, I took a little bit of French once upon a time, and I took a little bit of Latin once upon a time, I don't have any desire to get on an airplane and go to Barcelona and watch Barcelona. I don't want to go to Madrid and watch Madrid. Seriously? I, look, maybe someday, but it, it remains that I don't speak the language. I would feel completely... Uh, adrift and lost because I wouldn't pick up the nuances of a lot of what was going on or a lot of the conversations around me because of the language barrier. Whereas a Premier League fan in the United States of America can watch those matches and very easily envision themselves just being dropped into England and understanding the language. I'm telling you, I watched Spurs and West Brom last season when West Brom were still in the Premier League at Wembley. And a big part of the experience for me and for my son was to hear what was going on around us, just the way any live sporting event is. You want to hear the conversations of the supporters, and you want to hear what's what the players are saying to each other, and most of them, of course, are going to speak English to each other on the pitch, um, especially if they happen to be uh, English speakers. So that is of great value to me. Now, look, as a cultural experience, would it be great uh, to go to the Bernabeu? Yeah, sure. Um, but I think I'd lose a lot in translation, no pun intended. I disagree, but then again, I do speak more languages than you. Yeah, so. I mean, you have you you bring a perspective to this which has a great deal of value, but which is probably a point oh 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 six percent of what most soccer 
fans in the United States bring, brings to it. And that's great, but uh, you are a unicorn in that regard. I'm just trying to, to think if, if there are going to be a lot of people, and I, I guess we'll find out on, a, on Twitter or in iTunes reviews if people agree with you on this, but I think if you gave somebody the option to go, you know, see Wolves play or go to see Real Madrid play at the Bernabeu, they're going to get over the language barrier pretty quick. Yeah, possibly. I, I mean, that's here again. Look at you creating an example that I can't possibly win. L- let's make it. I like Manchester to move the United. goalposts. Everybody knows this. Yeah, let's make it Manchester United at Old Trafford against Real Madrid, and see what they say. I think it's a different analysis then. All right, that's fair. All right, we'll uh, agree to disagree, my friend. We'll move. Let's on. talk a little bit of VAR real fast. Yeah, thank God. Thank God of of all the things. VAR is going to come to the Premier League next season. They might even do it this year. They're bouncing around the idea of just plugging it the hell in. They should. They already have goal line technology. Like, this is not... I agree with you. This is not complicated. It's not like there's no technology in place. They have the more important technology already there, or what I would consider to be the more difficult technology to to utilize, right? Goal line technology is is not easy, I would think, or was not easy to create. And yet, the the concept of saying, yo, hold up a second, like that might have been a goal. We're going to go back and check this really quick. We've seen it throughout multiple uh, leagues last year. We saw it through the World Cup. Like, it's there. It works. It's effective. And ultimately, you get the results that you really should get because, like, humans are are, are not infallible. It's okay. But the EPL being so far behind this this curve is mind-numbing and maddening in a lot of ways for me. It's so I'm perfectly, glad to see that they've joined the 21st century. It's perfectly British reason, too, why they would think about waiting until next season to introduce VAR, which is, well, you know, we started the season without it, and we've played 12 matches across, you know, the entirety of our schedule. And so now to introduce VAR, is, it's inequitable. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't line up. We'll just wait till next season. That's a crazy reason. It, it's dumber than the fact that they didn't start the season with it. If the technology is ready to be used and they're confident that they can employ it without disrupting their product, which I think we've seen across many leagues and in many competitions at this point, it does not disrupt the flow of the game enough to make it not worth doing. Then if it's ready to go, put it in now. And to the extent that any team in the first 12 matches has a gripe about a result that went against them because there wasn't VAR at the time. That's just too bad. <laughs> you had 90-plus minutes in that match to not have that VAR moment cost you your result. And it was the rules you were playing under that both sides were playing under at the time that match was played. Now, from this point forward, whenever they employ VAR, now you know it's there. And you it's not going to change your tactics. You're going to play differently just because there's video review. Uh, If anything, uh, you'll just be confident that the right result will bear out because if there's a a questionable call or a situation that a referee obviously missed, you can count on it being fixed. So, no, I would not wait another second. And I agree with you, it's a little bit backward of the Premier League to have waited this long. But just because you did something wrong for a long time doesn't mean making it right is the wrong decision. There was a really funny thing that happened in England. And we haven't talked about this. It's not on our rundown, but it was something that caught my eye this week. And it really fits into that whole, the the Brits just getting a little bit too upset about, uh, you know, sticking to the absolute rule. Did you see what happened to the uh, official? Who, oh, uh, yeah. You're talking about Rochambeau. You're talking about uh, the rock, rock, paper, scissors. scissors. Oh, That's yeah, right. buddy. All right, let's talk about it really quick. So 
Um, David Lower Mac- league match. Go David ahead. David McNamara, who's a, a referee, he was getting ready uh, for a Manchester City and Reading matchup in the Women's Super League. Right. He realized it was a televised game. He realized that he had left his coin for de- for deciding the kickoff in the dressing room. So he went to the captains of City and Reading, Steph Houghton and Kirsty Pierce, to determine which side was going to kick off. The FA got upset because in Law 8, it says that the start of the match or extra time, a coin is tossed, and the team that wins the toss decides which goal it will attack in the first half of the match. As such, the, the English Soccer Federation decided that they were going to suspend this referee for 21 days, beginning November 26th. He had to come out and say that he did not act in the best interest of the game. And the head of the uh, the refereeing association called it a moment of madness. So, like, the, the, the captains apparently had come out and said that they were excited to do rock, paper, scissors. And that that was something that, that was always accepted, um, you know, in youth Probably league, in their youth, in, youth leagues, league, yeah, in youth up. league matches. So when this came out... Um, there, there were hundreds of referees who decided to stand with McNamara in, in protest. I don't know, and so they uh, decided to forego flipping a coin, and hundreds of officials across England decided to do rock paper scissors, which was a whole other thing. Um, so there, there were a few uh, refs who were quoted as saying, um, "Without me saying a word, four players came up to me and said, are we getting to do the rock paper scissors today?' Because they had seen the coverage." And there was somebody from from the Federation. Um, it was uh, Ref Support UK Chief Executive Martin Cassidy said, We can't condone anyone deliberately breaking the laws of football. However, we understand that hundreds took part. So, I mean, that, that like, that's silly, right? We need to find more ways to shoehorn your accents into this isn't show. That like, isn't that silly, though? Like, uh, Southern, Southern Sunday League spokesperson told the BBC, Two wrongs don't make a right. Referees are law enforcers and not lawbreakers. This action is unprofessional, and it brings the game into disrepute. Doing this, uh, doing this due to a forgotten coin is one thing, but this is a step too far. Here's the other thing: nobody suggested that in this instance. I mean, you have situations where uh, the conditions or the grounds can be such in terms of the weather, or in terms of you know what stand you shoot toward, et cetera, and so forth, where. There actually is an advantage to be able to decide whether you're going to kick first, which direction you're going to go, et cetera, and so forth. There was no suggestion by either club that the decision to employ rock, paper, scissors instead of a coin flip had any outcome on the match other than making the decision for the players. But it didn't give either side an unfair advantage. Um, I think it's asinine. I think this official did the best he could under the circumstances. I think. He was pressed for time. It was a TV game. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. It's a TV match. The optics of him running into the dressing room to retrieve the coin they provide him to flip to make this decision would be more embarrassing than what he actually ended up doing. Um, And I'll just go one further for you. I think the next time this gentleman comes back and officiates a match, uh, he should forget his coin again and turn to the captain of the opposing side, uh, pardon me, the visiting side, and say, I'm thinking of a color. <laughs> I thought there was more to that, but okay. I liked no, it. That, it. Though, no, it was funny. Um, all right. Let's uh, let's move on out of England. Uh, let's get to... Finally. Let's get to a uh, thing that we previously had spoken about. That, of course, is Der Klassiker. 
between Borussia Dortmund and Bayern München, Bayern Munich, for all those of you who are uh, uncultured enough to call it Bayern Munich and not Bayern München. There you go, Phil. That's I me. Will, uh, I will speak down to your level. Which um, happened before. Anyway, the uh, the game was an absolute... I don't know if you got to see it. The game was an absolute scorcher. It was everything that you would hope a marquee matchup would be. And of course, it was relegated to FS2. But Dortmund, in, in uh, the final few minutes, pull out the stunner, the the game-clinching the game clinching goal over Bayern. And they are up seven points, I believe, in the Bundesliga table. They are. And this was a heck of a thing, man. Um, to, to come away with a game-winning goal. I'm sorry, it was in the 73rd minute. It was uh, Alcacer. Who, uh, who scored it? This was a, a match that I think you're you're starting to see that that paradigm shift in the Bundesliga, and it was something that you talked about at the end of last season. Bayern's old, and Bayern is waiting and and relying on old players to make the difference. Lewandowski has lost a step. He had two goals in the match. I mean, it was good to see him step up and and score like they needed him to. But you're going into this game with Frank Ribery on on your left flank, Thomas Müller, who's you know, for for the most part, I would say, has kind of fallen out of out of being a, a world class player. He's a lost boy, that Thomas. Yes, uh, you know, Mats Hummels getting up there, Boateng, they're still back there. Oliva, you look at it, and even looking to the to the bench, you know, Robin isn't available. He's he's out. Um, they didn't start Hamas Rodriguez in the game. He never made it onto the pitch. Even though I would say that, you know, all things considered, Hamas is one of your better players. It's just. I don't know, man. It it is such there's such a disparity in 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 the pace of play, and and really, Dortmund look as though they have not only put Kovac on the hot seat if, as if it weren't hot uh, enough, but they've put the league on notice, and more importantly, they've sent a blasting message in all caps, underlined, bold, and italicized that they they mean business and they are not afraid of Bayern Munich. We still haven't decided whether it's Christian Pulisic or. Christian Pulisic. But the, again, I'm stunned by the fact that Dortmund is doing all of this and he isn't even really featuring. What if he finds his feet and starts playing at a high level? It's such what a great Dortmund start to do the then? season too. Well, that's what I'm saying. But so in the past, we've talked about how uh, Bayern have all of these options. And so if uh, two or three players aren't clicking, then they can just reach onto the, the bench and, and uh, chop and change and, and they get their results and it's all fine and good. Dortmund is now sort of stepping into that role where they have so much depth and so much quality um, that right now it's going great. They shouldn't change a thing. But they also have players who could step in and do uh, great jobs for them. They can weather some injuries. Um, They have enough, God knows, uh, poor clubs to play against in the schedule that as long as they take care of business, the creation of a seven-point lead over Bayern 11 matches in is a significant detail and something that should not be trifled with. In our last show, I said we have seen Bayern do this uh, like three out of the last six seasons where they start slow and then they just drop the hammer and pile up wins and the next thing you know they're winning the league by six, seven points and we all say, well, we got duped again. Yeah, but you know what? You don't want to play that game as many times as Bayern has played it. And as you've pointed out, they're an older club now. They certainly don't have the stability and the reliability of production that they've had in past seasons. And as always, you know, it works until it doesn't, right? Yep. Um, you can continue to let um, 
Clubs like Dortmund get out ahead of you and spot them leads and just trust that your muscle memory will take you past them ultimately. But it doesn't really play out that way every time. And I will say that if Dortmund manage to uh, get through here, and I know we're a long way from the end of the season, but if they can find their way through and win this league this year, that is going to really cause unrest in this league that has been very comfortable with Bayern essentially ruling things for such a long time. And then it becomes an open question of if you are a difference-making player on the world transfer market, is Bayern Munich a destination that you would put at the top of the list? This well, isn't even a smug you know, Manchester City observation. This is just an objective observation. Wouldn't you rather go to Barcelona? Wouldn't you rather go to Real Madrid? Wouldn't you rather go to Chelsea? over Bayern if this is the way Bayern's going to play. I, you know, I don't know. I, I think a lot of it comes down to, and, and we had said uh, at the end of last season, when it when the news had broken that, that Kovac was going to be taking over the team, I said that is a, an underwhelming hire to say the least. And you look at it, one of the, the people who's been linked to this job, um, even as far back as, as a, a month ago, was Zinedine Zidane. And Zidane had a, apparently... Um, had eyes for Tiago and, and James Rodriguez when he was, you know, managing Real Madrid to their third Champions League title in four years. And um, those were good days. They were. They're they're going to get back there. Don't worry. We haven't gotten to La Liga yet. <laughs> Remember how we said we were going to be tight for time? Yeah, that's funny. Uh, oh, well. Here we are. Anyway, Zidane has uh, has been, you know, brought up again as being on um, Bayern's shortlist. Now you want to talk about the attractiveness of playing for Bayern, I, I would still say, look, even though there's seven points behind, this is a club that has proven time and time again that, you know, if 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 anything, if this is a year that, that Dortmund's going to win, it's okay. They'll probably win the next six. Uh, so a, a few points to make on this. One, I don't know if there's been a bigger loss for a team than Arturo Vidal was for Bayern. Uh, they, you they, love him. They, I just think Vidal is, is a player that puts a lot of these things together, and he's certainly a guy who in the attack could have could have certainly helped Bayern in this game and, and could have helped them throughout the season so far. I think that loss has, has been pretty huge. Um, again, especially when you look at the age of the replacements, I think I think he's a guy that they miss. Um, but you want to talk about, you know, is is somebody going to want to come play for, for Kovac? No. I, I think anybody with, you know, two wits about them knows that this is probably a team that's going to sack this manager midseason if if this gap gets any larger. Uh, very similar to what Real Madrid did in getting rid of Julian Lopetegui, which we'll get to you know momentarily. But if Zidane is brought in, then yeah, man, like this this certainly becomes a, a job that or a, a place that players are going to want to go to because Zidane has this incredible track record of you know you could say that he had elite players, which he did, but you would then also have to assume that he's going to know how to make the most of elite players that still remain at Bayern and be able to go out and, and identify young players, develop them. I mean, you think about what Marco Asensio and Casemiro have become for Real Madrid. I mean, that doesn't happen if Zidane doesn't develop them, you know, if he doesn't have a hand in their development. Um, and that, you know, that for some of the players that are making an impact for Real, you know, Zidane was doing that down uh, with their, their uh, lower side. So all these, true. These these are things say, that you know. I think I think Bayern can look at and say this guy knows how to develop a program, and develop it and and develop players at at a young age. 
So I, I think that those things are something that if, if you're a vet or if you're a young guy who's looking to get off of, you know, a, a lower, like let's say a, a higher team in a lower division or somebody who's, you know, kind of wasting away as a, a bottom of the table in the EPL or even in Serie A, La Liga, Ligan, you know, if, if there's a possibility for you to move to one of these elite clubs for a, for a look, if Zidane is there, yeah, you, you certainly would look at Bayern Munich as an attractive place to go. You'd be stupid not to. As an aside, I hope this isn't our last show with this hack that you got going on. Uh, but putting this that is, aside, this is rough. I've never had this happen before. Yeah, that's I've heard that before. Uh, all right. So in any event, uh, my question to you uh, before we went on and started recording uh, was: So if you're Zidane, I wanted to say this is Zidane just to stick it to you, but please, don't. if you're Zidane, um, why do you join Bayern now? Like, they probably need you as badly in the summer as they need you right now. Um, and if you don't turn this deficit around this season, if you don't win the league, there'll be some patience and understanding that you started behind. But why wouldn't you start with a clean slate and a transfer window? Um, now, of course, there is a, a winter transfer window. Maybe Zidane could make some changes there. But it's a lot easier to remake your club in the image that you want it to be in over the summer than it is in January. And if you're Zidane, like, what's in it for you now? Unless you're really itching to get back on the touchline and and coach right this second. I mean, for me, if I were his agent, I'd tell him, no, man, make them wait. They're going to flounder around. They're going to futz up and not win this league. And all you're going to be doing is jacking up your price because you're the one they're going to need to get because if they lose this league, very few names other than Zidane will make any sense for them to bring in. Yeah, I agree. Um, I there was I wanted to go to Real Madrid, but I feel like if if we go to La Liga now, we're going to end up connecting all these dots back to the men's national team, and I think you wanted to finish with that. Is there anything you wanted to hit on Serie A really quick before we move on? No, I just I give you credit. I mean, Mandzukic and Ronaldo, your man, score. Um, Igain gets sent off. We talked a lot about the dynamic between Igain and Ronaldo and the fact that uh, Igain got shuffled out uh, for Ronaldo to step in. And it's so funny that we have that conversation about what that means for Igain's legacy and what that means for Ronaldo and all that stuff. And the very next match that they play, they happen to play against each other. Ronaldo scores and Igain gets sent off. And Juve win 2-0. At AC Milan, they're still unbeaten, and they got a stroll going right now, Juventus, um, which I think, and it kills me to say this because you know that I'm not Ronaldo's biggest fan, but there is no question that what Ronaldo has brought to Juventus in terms of production, but also attitude and star quality and belief, man, it's one of these things he's he's creating that extra 2, 6, 8% in everyone around him, mm-hmm. and he's rising tide, rising, you know, lifting all boats kind of situation. Yeah, um, I think it's exactly what Juventus needed. I, I'm sure that they would uh, tell you that they'd make this move they made uh, 99 times out of 100, and even 100th time they'd think seriously about it. And so, you know, I'll do credit. Um, they look like a side that have a very good chance not only to win Serie A this season, but to make it look relatively easy, which is not usually the way it often looks in Serie A. Yeah, and I think they've managed to get themselves to a point, and and a lot of this is because of Ronaldo and and what he brings to that team, as you said. Juventus looks like they're poised to get over that hump, and you have a guy who has proven that time and time again, 
you get into crunch time, you get into the end of a season, you get to the end of a, a long campaign, the guy just gets better and better as the Champions League season goes on. And the the beauty for him, and I, I think this is part of why he left for Serie A, is he knows that they're going to have that league wrapped up. They're going to be able to rest him, and he's going to be able to focus on champions. And, you know, unless Napoli or, or Roma or whomever um, decide to really make this thing interesting down the stretch, it, it's it's very likely going to be, what is it, the eighth straight, seventh straight, I forget now, Scudetto for Juve. It looks Finally, like a smart you're... smart business decision on his point on his part and very, you know, good business being done by Juventus. You were very unhappy with me last season when I suggested that Ronaldo should be a little bit ashamed of himself for dropping out of La Liga and parachuting into Serie A where in fact his diminished skills would play better. But the flip side of that is that it's exactly working out that way. Like yep. 90% of what Ronaldo used to be is still plenty in Serie A and he delivers plenty of value and he creates plenty of chances and he makes them a much more viable side not just within the league but in Champions League and in, in any competition they enter now they're better than what they were and so give the guy credit for understanding that these are my limitations now this is who I am tax issues aside or other questions aside it was time for him to go. He went, and he put himself in, in this position. He could have gone back to the Premier League very, very easily. That would have, but, and, but I think he knew that yeah, would have gone well. Badly. I mean, he would have. I agree. It would have. I I don't know how the pace of play would have looked for him. I mean, I think we can probably guess that he would have looked a step slow. Um, people would have had these ridiculously high expectations for him. He wouldn't have been able to keep up with them, and then inevitably, whoever he goes to, because he wouldn't have gone to City. And I, I don't think like Liverpool would have been in, you know, if whatever team he had gone to was a Champions League club, if he's unable to get that EPL team over the hump, which quite frankly, the EPL has not performed well in the Champions League the last, what, four or five seasons. That is correct. Um, you know, it, it's going to fall a lot more on him than it probably should have. So, yeah, I'm not suggesting, by the way, that the Italian media aren't crazy because they, they, in fact they absolutely are. are. And the expectations on Juve are ridiculously high. But that being said, had he gone to the Premier League and started slowly, I mean, can you imagine the rags in London and Manchester and all these little towns? Oh, my goodness. And and they would have dragged out every possible negative slant story about Ronaldo. They would have been interviewing people that he mistreated when he was with Manchester United. That would have been just an absolute disaster. And you so, thought the you thought the resurfacing of the sexual assault right thing from Vegas from a Correct. few years back was bad now Jesus like yeah no can you imagine if the English press had made that a point to drag that out as he was playing poorly for let's say United or Chelsea could this or be Liverpool? in his head yeah precisely right and so no he did the exact right thing he put himself in the right league he uh, ingratiated himself maybe that's not the right word but he. Um, made his way into that side without ruining the dynamic of the club because they're winning yep. and there haven't been a lot of reports of him being a bad teammate or a bad guy now obviously it's easy to grin when your ships come in but the truth is it's gone really great so far so it's not for me to suggest that he did anything other than the right thing he is right where he needs to be right now and this could be a, a very kind of sweet coda to his European career with that club bingo um let's before we uh wrap up for the for the day um we'll talk really quick about uh La Liga 
Messi returned to action, scored two goals, but the team lost at home to Real Batiste, who I believe have also beaten uh, some other top clubs in La Liga, including Real Madrid. So um, Real Batiste coming out of nowhere and uh, having a, a strong showing. Real Madrid won. Um, this comes back to, you know, Julian Lopetegui was fired after an absolute shellacking that Real took at, at the hands of uh, Barcelona in El Clasico. And they installed Santiago Solari, um, who has done a, a pretty admirable job. The rumors out of the locker room are that he is well-liked and that um, the players have responded, well, <clears throat> have responded well. They've said that he's a lot like Zinedine Zidane was. And so they've they've adapted well. Now, granted, the quality of opposition they've played against has not been world-class. Um, but in, in the games that he has managed... They've scored 14 goals, and they've only given up two. So, you know, we talked last show about the fact that the the goal differential for a lot of teams in La Liga, but especially Real, was was pretty awful. Uh, and I, let me correct myself. They've scored 15 goals and only conceded two. It's It's been a good enough showing that um, club president Florentino Perez, who has a very short leash for managers, um, already offered him and, and has, has since... Uh, signed Solari to a three-year contract. So we know that a three-year contract from Perez really doesn't mean anything uh, <laughs> more than, you know, he'll likely manage the next five matches. And if they don't go well, uh, somebody else will, will come in and take over. But it that's is a guy you don't want giving you a vote of confidence. Like that's the worst thing that could happen. Yeah, exactly. So I don't do voices or impressions. Um, oh, please try I one. I, I, I would no, love No, I won't. I won't. But um, if you can imagine it, if you would, um, Chris Berman used to do NFL. Oh Countdown come on! All sorts. I want. I, I know you can do a Chris There's Berman. There's no way I can do Berman. So, but let me just say, back, 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 back. <laughs> when when Berman was in charge of everything at ESPN, and and he was the biggest personality, and biggest voice on the network, of course, especially with the NFL, he was the one that coined the term the Norris Division, talking about the NFC North, NFC yeah. North. Uh, and before that, the NFC Central, because it was always a pig pile with Detroit and Minnesota and Chicago. And it was always like December 3rd, and, and one team was leading at 7-6, and six, and then one team was 6-7, and seven, and there was another team 6-7, and seven, but they had divisional tiebreakers, and it was just a slop mess every year. And he would talk about that being the Norris Division. Who's going to come out of the Norris Division? And, of course, that's a hockey term, and I know you're a hockey writer. I bring this up long way around. Because Barcelona, Barcelona, I know I just fell apart on that. Barcelona lead La Liga, say that fast six times, with twenty four points. Then you have Sevilla at twenty three, Atletico at twenty three, Alaves at twenty three, Espanyol at twenty one, and Real Madrid at twenty. So you have six clubs within four points of each other, with Real being the one at the bottom of the pile, but with probably the most resources and ability to pull themselves up. So I am here for a La Liga where the league lead changes over and over again and like strange results like Barcelona losing to Real Batiste happen. That's much more interesting for me as a La Liga neutral than the past 10 odd years have been where it's basically Barcelona, Real Madrid, occasionally Atletico Madrid and everybody else just showing up and being extras on the movie set. This is where I am a better fan than you. Because while you are this city elitist who wants to see uh, the rest of the EPL sit back and and let City have their cake and eat it and avoid financial fair play, 
and create this even more massive talent and achievement gap between them and the rest of the league. I, on the other hand, say I do enjoy the same thing that you're talking about. I, I very much enjoy the idea that La Liga could be up for grabs for the majority of the season. It makes the whole thing more interesting. Look, people aren't tuning into Ligue 1, right? Part, I mean, part of that is because it's on BN and it's it's a mess. Um, but, uh, you know, a big part of that is just because everybody knows PSG is going to win. Again, that's financial fair play, but everybody knows PSG is going to win. They have the most talent. They have the, the deepest, pocket, po- deepest pocketed owners. They have the best resources available. They have the, the overall best talent. They have the best top-end talent. So League Gun's a joke. Like, nobody cares, right? But, you know, you look at La Liga, which I would argue in a lot of ways is, if not the best, then I guess the second best league in the world. Um, a, a, a league that, who you know, their TV rights are going to be up for sale in, in two years. And, and they're a, a league that, has the potential, I'm not, you know, if done correctly, if they identify the right TV partner in the US, they have the ability, they have the chance, they have the star power, although, you know, as you've pointed out before, Ronaldo's not there, Messi doesn't have that many years left at, at the top of his game. They have the ability to to go global and to make a, a massive move into the US. Now, you cannot understate how big of an impact La Liga can have in the U.S., especially with the Spanish-speaking community, no when, question. And when you take into account not just the the kind of ratings that you would see via you know NBC, for example, but also the like Telemundo or Univision or Univision Deportes or Univision Mas, it's not even as simple as we're going to put it in this city or that city. Literally, there are probably thirty cities in the United States where if you hosted a La Liga match that counted that featured one of the top clubs, the People would come. Yep. To borrow from the movie reference, yep. they would come because, you know, these every city in the United States has a very deep and passionate football basis, yep. and give um, those supporters a chance to buy a ticket and watch those players in person. They will absolutely show up. Yep. So I, I think that there. By the way, it's really easy for you to be gracious about Real Madrid and the fact that La Liga is close this year. You, earlier in the show, I think you mentioned that they've won three Champions Leagues in like the last however many years, and how many times have they won La Liga? Like, save me. They from don't really your, win La Liga. Save me from your pious graciousness um, and calling me a bad guy because I like to see City bully some clubs for for once in my wretched uh, existence as a supporter. <laughs> You know, you've had plenty of fun as a Real Madrid supporter. And if you have to take a few lumps this season, I think it's for the best for everybody. Uh, and it's it's cute of you to try and cloak yourself in some sort of decency. But I know the truth. I certainly am cute. We've had lunch. You know this is true. Indeed. Um, you didn't so, buy. So we talk about Soleri's, uh, his his successes in a very early and, and, and um, short run so far with Real Madrid. We then have to follow his predecessor, Julian Lopetegui, who, uh, as I mentioned before, was sacked after that disgraceful Clasico effort. Um, There are conflicting reports that Julian Lopetegui and U.S. Men's uh, National Federation, U.S. Soccer Federation, have had conversations about him becoming the next uh, national team coach. And some reports say that it was the U.S. who reached out and that there are ongoing conversations. Sports Illustrated, on the other hand, has come out and said, no, Lopetegui approached U.S. soccer, to which U.S. soccer said, 
nah, we're good. I don't know how you feel about this. And and certainly, Lopetegui doesn't have the uh, expansive Spanish national team um, record to show for it because he was dismissed mere days before the World Cup when the, the news of his uh, imminent hiring by Real Madrid broke. Um, and he also had, you know, what was very clearly an underwhelming and disappointing very short stretch as manager of Real Madrid. But like the concept that the guy who could get hired at both of those jobs would not even be entertained conceptually by U.S. soccer tells me that that's that's just another thing to be skeptical about this organization, this national team program. I, I don't care how bad the guy was. He's been considered. You at least bring him in for an interview. Pick the guy's brain. Figure out what was successful about Real Madrid about their club structure, about, um, you know, the structure of La Liga, about the way that La Liga and Real Madrid worked with the national team, with the Spanish Soccer Federation. Pick his brain for all of that, and then send him away, right? Our listeners who have very long memories will recall a discussion we had last spring when the PSG job became available, and we tossed around the idea of Arsene Wenger applying and or being hired. And the point I made at that time was that you know, Wenger was a kind of a declining asset or falling star, but he still had something to give. And PSG, of course, were in relative disarray, like they always are at the end of these seasons when they crap out of the Champions League and they win League um by 30 points, but nobody cares. And the point I made at that time was essentially maybe they can take their mutual dysfunction and make something functional out of it. I'm with you. If Lobetegi had any interest in talking about the United States job, they needed to send the most expensive plane they could afford to him uh, with a delegation and bring him back and wine and dine and talk up and pick his brain, as you said, and ask about what his vision is and all of that. They needed to prioritize it. He would be candidate one for me, uh, no question. Because, like, what do you have to lose? I mean, you saw what happened over this most recent international break. Uh, the United States played the best that they could in terms of personnel against England, got shut out, against Italy, got shut out, got bossed around the pitch both times. I feel bad for Pulisic for even having to play with these stiffs that are out there with him, not to mention the fact that Sarah Can, I think it is, is still looming like a, you know, a guest who won't leave at your Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah, if Lopetegui had interest at all, he needed to be they need to prioritize making him part of this program to the extent that they were able to do that. So the fact that there's conflicting reports of whose interest it was and, and whether it made sense, you're right. Um, this USNT ship, it's drifting and it's sinking. And, you know, whether Lopetegui is the solution or not, he's better than anything I've heard before now. Yeah, I mean, think about it. The only other guy who was at least in proximity to the U.S., um, who they, they clearly let slip through their fingers was, was Tata Martino. That's right. And you were going to say Martino, and I agree with you. And, so, and like, again, like, he was there. He was with Atlanta United. Sure. And and not For only sure. was he there, but now he's gone to your arch rival. Like, U.S. soccer just continues to, to screw up. I mean, it. Ernie Stewart left the Philadelphia Union for this newly made up position of general manager. And, like, what do we have to show for it so far? I mean, it's the same thing that, that Union fans have said uh, for the last couple of years with Stewart in charge. But, like, what is there to show for it? You missed the World Cup. It's the entire summer passed. Still don't have a full-time manager, uh, a permanent manager. There's no direction. There's no identity to this team. 
Do you uh, know what it feels like to me, honestly, with the United States men's national team? I hate to say it. It almost feels like there was an air release out of the balloon when they missed the World Cup. And they all looked around and said, well, we're good. We don't have to try for a while now. Now we can just relax. I mean, that was stressful. We tried really hard. I mean, we brought Arena in. He was a pain in the ass. We thought we were going to get through. We didn't get through. Now we can kind of take it easy for a while. And maybe that was sort of understandable for a month or two after the Trinidad and Tobago fiasco. But we're going on a year plus, and we are further from qualifying for the World Cup now than we were the night we couldn't get a draw in the Caribbean. Because well, the, the pitch was too bad. Yeah, the pitch was too wet. Look, it feels to me like not only is there no plan, but there's no there's no drive. Nope. There's no verve. There's no intensity or want to to fix this. It's just a bunch of people looking around saying, well, I guess we don't have it. I mean, we don't have enough. Like, we're not good enough. And oh, by the way, what do we have to worry about? Because they're eventually going to uh, increase the field to 48 clubs and or 48 nations, I should say. And, you know, we'll limp in then. Yep. No, it's unacceptable. And the Lopetegui thing is a symptom, but the disease is much more disconcerting. Nope. You're, that, that I think is about as well as they could have been stated. Um, the only thing of note that U.S. soccer has done of, of note in the last few days is Christian Pulisic um, went out and, and represented the team as the captain in their 1-0 loss to Italy. Um, if you want to talk about somebody who has some fire and some passion, I'd argue he might be the only person uh, in all of U.S. soccer who has any of that, and he's only 20 years old. So I'm now at the point where I would, I'd go to him and say, who do you want to manage this team? Seriously. Like, you make the choice. Um, I, look, I'm not saying that he's Michael Jordan by any stretch of the imagination, but... You know, in an awkward comparison, when Jordan was the best basketball player on the planet, there were the Jordan rules, and he got what he wanted. He got the teammates he wanted. He got the coach he wanted. Uh, he got all the money he wanted, all those things. You know, <laughs> in order to keep Pulisic interested in the United States men's national team and driven to drag them to the World Cup, man, I'd, I'd give him the keys because at this point, how could he possibly do worse? That's a fair point. It's a fair point, and it's a sad point to have to make. Uh, not a not a, an ideal way to uh, to end this show. Uh, we did mention Wayne Rooney uh, got to unretire for one more appearance as an England international. That was a, you know maybe one interesting thing that came out of this international break. Um, what was interesting was the way that the British press uh, got their knickers in a twist, shall we say, about the idea of Rooney, who had re- retired from international football coming back and getting a cap in this friendly against the United States at Wembley, which was obviously a cash grab and a way to try to sell tickets to a match that didn't have a lot of competitive interest attached to it because of how bad the United States is. You know what? Why are we worrying about, like, why are they worrying about such a thing? What does it harm? Rooney came on for 30 minutes at the end of the match. People got to cheer him one more time in an England shirt and they got to feel good about the fact that England won and Rooney played, and they got to be there to see it. Like, again, the, the British press will make you crazy if you let them. Um, you know, I'm a fool for listening to it uh, on TalkSport or, or whatever, wherever I hear it. As soon as they start talking about the fact that Rooney shouldn't be allowed to unretire to make essentially a friendly appearance, um, I should switch channels because why do I care? I, I think it's I think it's wonderful 
And even if it's not wonderful, it doesn't have any impact. Yep. Uh, before we go, for those who are local uh, to the Philadelphia area, um, the Philadelphia Union made a, a few announcements this week. Um, Jim Curtin is being brought back as manager on a one-year deal. Um, their new president of of, operate, of of what soccer operations, the Ernie Stewart replacement Ernst Tanner, who came to us from Germany, uh, Gott sei Dank, um, they announced that uh, Josh Yarrow, who was second pick uh, in his draft, has uh, had his contract option declined, as as did uh, Richie Marquez, who had been a stalwart of, of center defense, uh, not this year, but in years past. Marcus Epps, Fabian Herbers, uh, Adam Najim, who you know had been brought in as a playmaker and somebody they had high hopes for, they all had their um, options declined, as, as well as uh, 600000 uh salary. Uh, player Jay Simpson, who was uh, infamously brought in as the uh, the long pursued international striker, who uh, fell flat. They also declined the option of uh, Fabinho, who's I believe 33 years old. Although there are negotiations to bring him back, um, just a, a I don't know, interesting stuff. Gaddis and Creval, even John McCarthy, who I think is going to go elsewhere. They're all out of contract. Um, Doshkal, who was a a heck of a find and and a guy who quite honestly was the the perfect number 10 for this team uh looks like he's going to be leaving his loan deal um with his chinese club has expired and he has apparently according to tanner um expressed a desire to go back and play in europe so it does not look like bork doshka will be back which now leaves you know another big hole in this midfield and they still don't have um, really any any kind of threat as a striker um, unless you really believe in CJ Sapong or or rolling it back with uh, with Corey Burke uh, our own Kevin Kincaid who had previously covered the union as a beat reporter has been long pushing for the uh, idea of them moving to a, a 3-5-2 which I, I honestly would find you know somewhat refreshing at this point I've always kind of questioned if uh, Jim Curtin is the guy tactically to implement a system like that. He has previously said that he and Ernie Sturt had previously said that players have a hard time learning new systems, which is a total cop-out, total BS. Um, In Kincaid's uh, proposed formation, he would have Austin Trusty, Elliott, and McKenzie uh, as the three backs, Real out to the left, Medunian in, holding in front of the defense, uh, Rosenberry out wide on the right, and then uh, uh, Derek Jones and Alejandro Bedoya uh, as the final two midfielders uh, up in an attacking area. Fafa Pico, perhaps David Akam as a striker, uh, joined by a designated striker, which, uh, let's be honest, unless Ernst Tanner is going to bring in somebody from his days in Germany, I am uh, I'm go- I'm not going to hold my breath that... Uh, Jay Sugarman, the union owner, is going to uh, throw out the capital required to bring in a an impact striker. I don't know how you feel. What I feel uh, is that I'm in favor of anything that opens up the matches at Talon. If I have to go, I'd much rather watch 5-4 than 1-0 or 2-0 or 2-1. And if that means they take some losses in the process, I'm willing to suffer that too because it's more entertaining when goals are scored. And look, they've shown that limping into the playoffs the way they did this season and losing consecutive results to NYCFC in must-win situations and losing their U.S. Open Cup match such as they did. Um, 
playing the way they've played for the last three or four seasons, they can't be trusted to score when they need to in matches that matter. So you might as well make it a, a new day, uh, especially if you're going to have Curtin stick around, which obviously they have. I just flat out um, don't agree with that that move, but whatever. No, that's okay. Oh, you mean the, the Curtin move? With Curtin. I mean, well, we, we talked about this. What else were they going to get? I don't know. I honestly don't know. But this is the thing that, that we talked about, you know, multiple times on a – uh, on this show, it's come up. I believe Kevin and I have had this conversation on It's Always Soccer in Philadelphia. We had this conversation at the end of the, the um, Monday episode of Crossing Broadcast. To, to me, probably more than, than anything, you know, Curtin, maybe the, the one thing that people can say is the players like him. He's, you know, on the social emotional intelligence scale, he's, he's probably high up there. I just don't think he's ever shown anything tactically. Or, or if they either. like him so much, why don't they deliver for him? That's a great question. Look, his job was supposedly in jeopardy at the end of this season after the U.S. Open Cup disaster. And they had a potential to host a playoff game that they frittered away. And then they had a first-round playoff loss where they were completely outclassed and blown off the field. And after that match was over, the narrative and the uh, undertone was definitely he was gone so like please don't tell me that the players like him because if they liked him they'd try harder for him every time look if they like him so much why do they treat him this way why do they show up so small whenever he asks them for a result he, they don't give it to him i mean it's it's a i guess i would say that it's a decent point there's there is plenty to show that they've come up small in those big moments i think the argument would be that He's never really had legitimate resources to work with. No, and Kevin said that they're an overachieving club and with so a very them, low payroll. Them and getting he's done to miracles multiple, to get them that far. Yeah, them getting sure. to multiple U.S. Open Cup finals has has been a huge success. Them having you know the the highest win and point total in franchise history this year was a step in the right direction. But then you look at it, you know that Simpson's money is coming off the books, and you know, you know that Doshkal's probably gone. You know, you have to hope that, that David Akam comes back healthy off of, you know, the sports hernia injury that he had and the surgery. But, like, there, there's no guarantee that this team is, is going to be able to replace the contributions that uh, Doshkal made. Um, obviously, it's easy to replace, um, you know, the waste of space that Jay Simpson ended up being. But I, I think at the end of the day, and, until we see that this ownership is willing to spend money, there really shouldn't be any kind of credit given or or any kind of expectation that it will get better but i guess we'll find out i think if you run this this team back and you don't make a couple of impact signings you know what you're gonna get you know what these players are you know what this manager is ultimately you know it, you're not going back to the playoffs under that scenario you just brought no. out because they frankly did overachieve to get as far as they did this season my complaint is that having overachieved once you reach that level you got to push it to the next, yep. and they didn't, and they didn't do it for him. So you bring Curtin back, and you're you're now basically asking him not just run it back, and probably with again a limited amount of money to spend and limited personnel, you've got to try to make all those incremental and small accomplishments and overachievements all over again. But it doesn't work that way. You don't step in the same river twice. All the other clubs in the conference are going to try and get better. Some of them will. And, you know, NYCFC isn't going away. Red Bull isn't going away. Um, yeah, I, I'm not overly optimistic about next season, at least not right now. But we'll talk about it again soon. Yep. All right. Well, 
this has been a, another fun episode of uh, Crossing Broad FC. I feel like my throat's on fire. I feel like somebody has poured sand down my throat and has been hitting it with a, bl- uh, <clears throat> a blow dryer this entire time. So um, that's been fun. Thanks for sticking with us. You know, thank you for uh, for coming in off the bench and uh, contributing some some solid minutes here, Phil. It's uh, It's been greatly appreciated. I'm here when you need me. You know that. Ah, you're always so reliable. You're... You're the Fellaini of this podcast. I have better hair. Accurate. Accurate. All right. Um, so a big thank you again. It is uh, Thanksgiving week. We are thankful for each and every one of you who listen to the show and uh, who come back for more. Uh, don't forget to, uh, I don't know, let somebody else in your life know. Or if uh, if you're in any kind of a, a Facebook group or whatever kind of group or on a page and you think somebody would enjoy listening to, to this show and, and getting some breakdown on international soccer um, with a, a little bit of a, I don't know, Philly flair. Do we even call it a Philly flair? I don't know. We're absolutely. We're two guys. We're two guys who are here who enjoy talking about this stuff. And uh, if you would be so kind, go on to uh, Apple Podcasts or iTunes, wherever you, you want to go and, and uh, leave a five-star review. That'd be great. It helps us get a little bit of, uh, of attention on those rankings. So uh, that would be swell. Uh, in the meantime, go check out um, the other shows on the Crossing Broad Podcast Network. Uh, they are linked in the description. All you have to do is click on them, and it should redirect you to, I believe, the Art19 page, uh, which quite simply will allow you to subscribe on either iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, Phil and I, both of our Twitter handles are also in the description. All you have to do is click on that, and then uh, it'll take you to Twitter, and you can just click follow. And you can go back and forth with uh, the master of the take, and that is uh, Phil Kaidel. You can find him on Twitter, just in case, at Phil Kaidel, K-E-I-D-E-L. Not hard to spell, it's Phil Kaidel. Phil, I am thankful for you. I'm thankful for our listeners, and I'm thankful for another episode of Crossing Broad FC. Anything else you'd like to say before we go? Safe travels, everybody. We will see you next week as the European club football seasons resume. Thank heavens, because the only thing I'm not thankful for are international breaks. Amen. We'll see you next week.